Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that wants to know how Palace have managed to remain almost exactly 12th place all season. My name is Cameron McDonald and I spent three years working as FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And how the turns tables. Last week we were talking about how Arsenal's title race might be over because they had capitulated to City 3-1. And now, one week on, Arsenal have a fantastic late comeback against Aston Villa and City had a late crumble. It's always all to play for, which is the joy of football. And we're going to talk about it. Let's get straight into it. Yeah, it, it's strange because I think last week we were kind of, we were assuming that City were going to go on this big rampage now that they'd reclaimed top spot and Arsenal were, were going to start to fall away. Just because based on the evidence of our eyes, that's what's happened, you know, countless times with Manchester City. How many times have we seen them be behind Liverpool, for example, um, and then sort of have that moment where they kick into gear and go, okay, time to stop messing about now. Here's where we are. Several times. And, and I think that's what we all thought, or you and I certainly both thought was about to happen after their win against Arsenal. Sort of that was the the blue touch paper being lit and it was, okay, City have been messing around. They've been dropping points to your Everton's and, and, and other teams like that. But now, now they're really mean business. And conversely, oh, Arsenal, you know it was a great time in the sun but now that's sort of come to an end and you can see the mental capitulation starting to happen um but yeah I mean the Premier League always has a couple of twists and turns uh the second you think you know what's going to happen it'll hit you with a curveball um and yeah here we are Arsenal are back to being top of the league which is you know we all thought we've been you know talking about that elephant up the tree metaphor we all thought once it came down it wouldn't be back up there anytime soon and somehow it's managed to climb back up the tree uh which is even stranger than it being up there in the first place (laughs) um yeah I know what you mean I mean I guess the the only caveat to that being the fact that um as discussed Arsenal do have that, that game in hand um still to use but um yeah you're right it definitely felt like the tide was shifting and now you know they've they've stumbled upon entry into the water um so i don't know if that analogy works but we'll, we'll roll with that um it's interesting i i feel like i want to put i want to put a question to you um do you think that this city side has changed do you see like a, a turning point for them where they've lost their their bite their edge their their competitive spirit or do you think that it's it's kind of like you know when you you've got an essay that's due in maybe back at university and the deadline's not for a while so you know it's not really a problem right now you can kind of ignore it and then like with the understanding that when it gets to closer to the time you're going to have to put a big shift in for the last week or two but like it's not really a problem because like it's you're going to get it done. Um, I think I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I think, you know, City are definitely different. I think the main difference this season is they are just not solid at the back. I mean, they always, even when they win, they always seem to, to you know, win to one rather than win to nil. Uh, and sort of everyone's managed to get a, a goal against them if they really try hard enough. And I think part of that has just been this, you know, mad reshuffling every five minutes you know the same centre-backs barely ever played together and it's sort of now it's a back three with this sort of weird sort of like three two uh you know whatever it is a three two two three (laughs) um which is just sort of I thought it was shocking against Arsenal it was only when that change happened that they managed to sort of get into the game um and I I, you know we talked about a lot last week so I won't go into it now but I think they were sort of flattered by a three-one partly due to that formation not being you know playing very well um and against Nottingham Forest here you know they, they made some chances and Haaland didn't have his best performance but 
realistically, no disrespect to Nottingham Forest, it's a fantastic result, you would think that Manchester City, ostensibly the best team in the land, would be able to roll over newly promoted sides like Nottingham Forest, and, and they didn't. They, they dropped two points. Um, I do think, at the same time, you know, they will still be able to, at some point, buckle down and get a series of results when, you know, I, I mean, it's all kind of there, really, isn't it? You know, they're experimenting with these silly new results, and uh, silly new formations, rather, and swapping <laughs> around players, and, and doing all this results. stuff, and going... <laughs> Well, and, and just going like, oh, you know, Rico Lewis, you know, on the you know one day he's good enough to oust Joao Cancelo. On the other hand, now he's the sort of main right back at the club uh, that Joao Cancelo's left. Uh, we're ousting him entirely from from the. I don't think he was even in the squad uh, for the double game week. Um, so I think they've come a point when maybe Pep Guardiola's like, okay, I, I, we actually could lose a title for Arsenal now. Let's stop playing. Kevin De Bruyne plays every game. Erling Haaland plays every game. Let's just win every game, guys. Um, and I do think they have the capability to do that. I do think as long as the difference between these two teams is three points or less, and it's currently two points, you can't really look past the fixture at the Etihad. Um, but, you know, Arsenal could continue winning these games and City could keep dropping points in, in, in these games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I want, I want to touch briefly on um, what Pep Guardiola did in this game. You mentioned there that, you know, uh, maybe a shift towards... Um, you know, just playing the key players, making sure that they get their game time. Um, what I was surprised about, um, you know, firstly, I guess the one thing to mention is that, you know, Nottingham Forest equalised late, a classic example of, of, especially in the Premier League, never being able to sit back and, and like be happy that the, the job is done. You've really got to play all the way to the last minute because any team uh, will try and push till that last minute. Um, what surprised me, though, was that upon finding themselves equal again, Pep Guardiola elected to bring off both Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne in the 88th and 89th minutes um, and instead brought on Nathan Ake and, and a slightly more understandable Julian Alvarez. Um, strange, very strange, very bald. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It is very bald. And the other bald thing about those two subs is that they were City's only two subs. And they came, as you mentioned, there's sort of 88th, 89th-ish minute. Whereas when you look at uh, Nottingham Forest, for example, they made five substitutes before their goal. Um, and Chris Wood, who was one of those substitutes, scored the goal. Um, so it is just a bit like, I know that Manchester City you know, probably would have been thinking, well, well, we can never sort of draw a game here. But 1-0 is, you're not home and dry at 1-0. And to not make any sort of substitute... I mean, if you're going to bring on Nathan Ake, surely you bring him on before they score to try and shore up the win. Um, you don't make no subs. And then when you do <laughs> concede, you make a defensive substitution. I wouldn't have thought. Um, but then I have all the hair on my head. So what do I know? <laughs> you sure do, Cam. We 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 fair-headed folk can only guess as to the... Uh the ramblings and ramifications that, that go on in, in Pep's um, very uh, very clean skull. Um, yeah, a weird one. Just thought I'd mention it. It seems like he's tying himself in knots, as he always does. It seems like Arsenal might well let him continue to do that for a little while until he straightens up his tie and decides to finally get cracking along with the rest of the team. But, um, you know, I think that Arsenal are a really good side and, and not just because of the results obviously you know that's not surprising anyone these days but their mentality has shifted I think they are becoming a bigger team in terms of, of how they perceive themselves and they get it wrong sometimes but um, for the most part I think if you leave the door open for them long enough they will start to feel comfortable at the top 
they will start to to really try and seize that that moment. And I think that if City continue to not capitalise on the fact that Arsenal will not win every game between now and the end of the season, then I could see them losing it, to be honest. And, and I would describe it as that, as them losing it. Yeah, I, I, well, I think, you know, when you look at them as sort of being the best team for the last, you know, how, many, how many, six, seven years it's been, um, it, whenever they don't win it, and, you know, you look at their squad compared to most other squads and the money that's been spent, it kind of is them losing it um, rather than sort of anyone else winning it, uh, whatever your sort of take on that is. But no, I, I think that is all true. And I think that's one other thing that we haven't really talked about in the last couple of months because it hasn't really been relevant in any of the last few months, or I would say maybe even all season, um, and that's that tomorrow, um, Manchester City will be playing in the Champions League round of 16 uh, away at RB Leipzig. Now, the reason I say maybe this hasn't been relevant all season is, yes, Manchester City, um, of course, did play in the Champions League groups, as all teams do, but even though they had a, a fairly hard group with Borussia Dortmund and, and Sevilla in it, you could kind of, they didn't really need to go hell for leather to top that group. It was never a massive sort of, oh, we've got to make sure we're rotating the right players, stay in. Whereas now, you know, there will be games. I think it's is it Bournemouth they're playing on Saturday, um, where people are sort of going, well, you know, the, you know, they should have enough to beat Bournemouth and they'll probably rest Kevin De Bruyne. They might rest Erling Haaland. So they have sort of have, you know, full strength to sort of play severe, um, not severe, Leipzig sort of home and away. Um, and they could do this. But as we've seen with Nottingham Forest, an example, I think, you know, Forest, Forest is better than Bournemouth. If they don't play their full strength 11, they could slip up. Conversely, you've got Arsenal in the Europa League who... It's also a trophy they've never won. Um, but I, I get the sense that for... it's You know, we, we talk about this all the time with like Liverpool, the season Liverpool won the league. Like, how much of Arsenal's resources are they going to throw into winning the Europa League if they have a chance of winning the Premier League? I don't know yet, and will remain to be seen. Sweet none. I, I, I would imagine not a lot. Uh, and they do have a, <laughs> a much less deep squad than Manchester City. But at the same time, I can easily see over the coming weeks Pep Guardiola rotating out key key players in order to ensure that they get a good crack of the whip in the Champions League whereas I don't know that Mikel Arteta will be doing the same thing at Arsenal It's true they'll be divided and uh, I think that Pep's history with the competition will mean that he will want to put time into it um, I don't know it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic because my, my instinct tells tells us that one of them is going to have to give um, you know I think that if City are trying to play on two fronts and they continue to not um, play well in the Premier League. At some point, they're going to have to give it up or commit to it. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and no, so I think that's right. We'll, we'll see that at the time. Um, I also want to give a, a a brief mention to Chris Wood. I just love that he's in the Prem and playing for Nottingham Forest. I just I like. I don't know what character he feels like. Some sort of like ghost of Premier League's present. Um, but there's just something really like magical about watching him pop up and score a goal to to, to level I, I don't know do you, do you do you know what I mean yeah and no, I know exactly what you mean um it is it's hilarious sort of watching him <laughs> just jump up out of there all six foot seven of him or, or, or however tall he is uh and, and score these goals well, <laughs> I think by the by the time he left Burnley he was about six eight yeah Mm, yeah, I think I think that's right. Well, I mean, look, it's, it's funny because you mentioned sort of City falling away and we're going to talk about Arsenal next. But just before we do, I mean, there is a third team now in the mix and I just want to flag it now. Um, we may go mm. on to talk about them in a little bit more detail later. But, you know, after a few after sort of Arsenal's um, capitulation over the last few weeks and City's capitulation recently, Manchester United now find themselves in a situation where they're five points off the top. 
that's not insurmountable. And at the moment, with Marcus Rashford in the form that he's in, um, Eric Ten Hag seemingly finding his feet, you know, we've been talking about this title race for 95%, aside from like six weeks ago when United sort of quickly crested. And it might be the case in a few weeks' time that we go, oh, they've fallen down again. But yeah, Manchester United, they've got the form player in the league right this second. And Ten Hag yep. seems to be cooking up stuff. You know, Jaden Sanchez has been coming and looking a, a lot better. I, this uh, I'm starting to think we should look at this as a, as a three-way race, and it may, we may get to a point in the season where if City sort of start to go in, it's it's Arsenal and their old enemies at the other side of Manchester who they're having to worry about catching them. Very true, yeah. Um, the last couple of weeks we've seen Newcastle drop off a little bit. Um, they've basically kind of stopped winning games. Don't really know how else to describe it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Man U have pushed on. Um, they are comfortably third place now. They're seven points above Tottenham. They look really strong and confident. Um, the team's flowing. Christian Eriksen's great in that midfield. Turns out, what do you know, a good defensive midfielder can be transformative. Um, and yeah, it's uh, they're a fun team to watch again um, for the first time for, I would say, a long time, maybe even 10 years. Um, so, yeah. well, slightly less than 10 years. Um, well, but. we'll, we'll get into United in detail maybe a bit later, and I think there's a, a whole thing to unpack there. Um, firstly, which is just like, how is Rashford? Like, what has changed that has turned Rashford into? He was such a talented player like three years ago, and then sort of in subsequent seasons, he's looked like a shadow of his former self, and then he's come back this season better than he's ever played before, and looked sort of like, you know, I think world class something that's thrown around, which is another thing actually I want to talk to you about later. But looking like he is world class level, and certainly in world class form. Um, just completely mm. unplayable. I, I, I really want to sort of dig into the, the mystery behind that. Um, but let's talk about Arsenal first and their game against Aston Villa. Um, just because I think this was a really interesting game in that it was in many ways sort of a microcosm of Arsenal season. I, I watched the first half and I just thought, aside from Bukayo Saka's like really nice individual goal, a real, real thunderbar sort of a goal, Arsenal were just really, really off the pace. And, they, you know, you know things are bad when teams are getting the simple things wrong. It's one thing when you're losing the ball because you're attempting that long sort of 30-yard pass. So you try and sort of, like, part, find a laser ball through the defence or something like that. But when you're turning over possession from, like, sideways passes and you can't complete three passes in a row, that's when things are, are really, really bad. And, you know, Ollie Watkins scoring as early as he did um, immediately put their stamp on the game. I was watching this and I thought... This is it. This is really this is the end of Arsenal season. They've clearly lost the sort of magic they had. They've lost the confidence in themselves. It is over. And yeah. then they exploded into life in the second half and and got three goals. Um, Jorginho was really really solid. Um, they had they could have got um, you know a few more goals. Erdegaard missed a, missed a sitter um, at two two, which at the time everyone thought was. Um, you know, the game dusted. And then there was that hilarious own goal um, from Emmy Martinez, who has sort of been like doing a fair bit of time wasting and also just general <laughs> shithousery um, yeah. before Jorginho's shot like rebounded off the off the post, of the bar and hit him in the back of the head and went in. Yeah, it was, uh, there was definitely some, um, some satisfaction <laughs> felt, I'm sure, um, on the part of Arsenal for, from that one. Um, yeah, I think um, it, it's, Another sign of a great team. You you react to um, the pressure that you're under in game. Um, you know, I, I think again uh, another trait that they're finding their feet with. Um, yeah, I think that early on, uh, Aston Villa's tactics were working pretty well. Um, you know, sit back, take the pressure, and then and then back yourself to. 
be able to isolate some of Arsenal's defenders who are not world-class. I just would say I don't think Arsenal's defence is world-class. I think they work well in a system. But if you can get them one-on-one, you can beat them. Um, and and that's exactly what Ollie Watkins did. Um, pretty much a solo goal. Um, and yeah, it, it was um, a bad first half. And then they, they managed to turn it around. I think that you've got to give massive credit to Bakayo Saka here. He really does lead this team, um, mm. you know, in terms of, of being that, that spark um, that can just turn turn complete games around. Um, I was so impressed by him today. Not today, on the day. Yeah, it, it was an impressive performance. Uh, the other player I would single out for praise would be Jorginho, just not for that goal, but also just, I think, the the two things that you can look at from this game and sort of Arsenal as a sign of change are firstly changing that mental state and secondly ever since we've come back from the World Cup I think every other team in the league has kind of recognised that Arsenal are a pretty sharp outfit and we've seen an increasing number of low blocks being played against them even from City when they they went to the Emirates um, the other week they were sort of playing a really low block you know a lot of men behind the ball eight men at the midfield and, and sort of sitting back when, when, when Arsenal have possession. Um, and, and one of the ways to beat a low block, uh, although it's a little bit of a gambler's choice, is uh, shooting from range. Now, Arsenal do not have a lot of players who are consistently very good at shooting from range. Um, <laughs> and Jorginho has a, a mixed record with it, but he's now, you know, I, I think he hit the post maybe against City or something like that. He had a, a shot from range that, that did something, I believe. And then he had a couple of shots from range in, in this game. Um, and, and obviously the one that sort of ended up being an own goal for Martinez ended up completely changing the game. Um, I think he's looked fairly slick so far. Um, obviously it's two games and I think there is still an issue in having him and Xhaka in the midfield when both of them sort of chug along at about a max speed of four miles per hour. Um, <laughs> but he's had his value. Um, and I think... When, with Thomas Partey injured, he's not been a bad deputy by any means. And I think he, you know, he was instrumental in winning this game. Um, so, yeah, very, very impressed so far from Jorginho. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, unlike, yeah. Well, I was, very, I was very impressed with Willie out at Arsenal in his first few games. And we all know how that turned out. So maybe this is sort of flattering to deceive for the start of your, the start <laughs> of your job when you're turning up early every single day. And you're sort of like, oh, yeah, oh, I've actually done this task ahead of time. Or, oh, I worked on the weekend. Yeah, don't worry. And then six months in, you're like, yeah, I'll turn <laughs> up at 9.13 and you'll like it. <laughs> Love the analogy. Um, yeah, you're right. Jorginho looks good so far. Um, I, I thought he was quite slow paced. Definitely the first game he played. Um, a lot of sideways passes. Um, not a lot of, of dynamism going forwards. But um, looks like he's settling in fairly well to the team. And I'll happily concede that I was quite critical of, of signing him. I didn't think he would work in the system. And early signs seem to be that that I was probably wrong. Um but it's a long season ahead and, and maybe even a long career at Arsenal ahead. So, so we'll see uh, who comes out on top in the rub. Um, but yeah, I think um, credit to Jorginho is deserved. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, so so a pair of interesting games there. Um, and it, it, I'm glad, you know, from a neutral stance that it continues the narrative because it would have just been boring. Whatever you think about City, whether you're a big, well, probably not if you're a City fan, but if you were sort of ambivalent about the whole uh, cash thing or you sort of have, um, you know, the, the date set in your calendar for City's, you know, findings to be to be sort of attacked. Um, 
I think we can all agree that when a team starts to run away with it, it's less exciting than that sort of like high intensity, um, for sure. you know, dynamic finish to it to a year. So it's not quite over yet. Um, not, not yet by any means. I, I want to give a, a quick shout out as well to uh, Emmy Martinez going up for the uh, the corner, getting scolded <laughs> by Unai Emery, um, which he, I found he was hilarious. not happy with that one. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Although I will say um, it was an interesting thing that I I was watching it. Uh, I was watching Unai Emery's interview afterwards and he, he was trying to be fairly like, um, you know, uh, like, what's the word? Like, um, he was trying to be fairly chill about it. And he was, he was he basically said something along the lines of, you know, it's fine because I didn't tell him. He didn't know. He knows now. Mm-hmm. But then he said <laughs> he knows now for his career. Um, which I think a lot of people have read as being like incredibly sassy and a veiled and, threat and and bitchy. But I actually want to just maybe caveat it by saying that I think that it's often really easy to misinterpret uh, what is for a lot of players uh, interviews in their second, sometimes even third and fourth languages. And I think it might well be that in the moment, um, you know, Unai Emery didn't know couldn't think of the word for the season, for example, or couldn't think of, of a word that he wanted to use. So he fell back on a word that is like a very direct translation from the Spanish, um, which is career. So it, it might well be that he's, he's been quite, uh, quite sassy. It could also mean that he just didn't really know how to express himself in the moment because English isn't his first language. And Lord knows enough memes have been made about the fact that his English is not perfect. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Always good to keep that in mind. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, he was certainly a lot more reserved than I'd be if a keeper went up for a corner and it resulted in us conceding when there was still like two minutes of extra time to play <laughs> without me saying anything, certainly. It was in the 98th minute, though. But yeah, I, I, I it was maybe a little look, premature. Look, look, it's hypothetical because if I was a manager, I would have the goalkeeper up in the box and I would be coming out of my technical area to go in for the header as well. But if I was not that kind of manager and my keeper did it without me me telling them to, I'd be fuming. Yeah, I think uh, I think maybe he wants to be sat on the uh, sat on the halfway line at best. Um, but again, I think um, I think it's a nice example um, of something which we don't always talk about, which is that when new managers come in, they've really got to change everything from the ground up. We're not just talking like the the high flying tactics. We're talking about you know who who of the players will collect the fines. You know who um, who goes up for corners, who uh, who takes penalties. You know all of these things become decisions that need to be worked out um, by the new manager, and and often a, a lot of them can fall by the wayside for the first couple of weeks. So you know it does take betting in takes time. Um, you know to to go to drill down to be as specific as like if it's the ninety eighth minute and we're down by one goal, do I want my keeper to go up? for it is really specific but i'm sure there'll be loads of examples like that 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 we don't think about yeah absolutely couldn't agree more a lot of it and i said probably most of it is down to the minutiae of you know every now and again uh, uh one issue will come up that we'll sort of think of like you know certain foodstuffs being banned but things like player diet and sort of times that they do their training and how frequently they do their training and you know tiny tactical decisions like who's standing where what kind of market yeah these all play into the into the wider sort of tapestry it is not as simple as just picking 11 really good individual players uh, and letting them run out and, and sort of you're going to win everything which takes us nicely and, and into our a, next a segment it's also a completely new system often that they have to learn um which takes time 
It is. Well, uh, on my, my segue that you rudely interrupted there about uh, people trying to assemble <laughs> squads like it's FIFA manager mode and put 11 players together expected it to all go well, um, I was, of course, going to move into Chelsea, uh, who have continued their torrid run of form by losing to bottom place Southampton. Um, a result that raises a number of questions uh, for me. Number one, is James Ward-Prowse the best player of all time? Number two, if you sacked your manager after every game... Would the new manager bounce, or indeed no manager bounce, see you win the league unbeaten? Number three, can <laughs> Potter turn it around? Hmm? Is he the guy that needs more time, or is this job simply too big for him? Um, so we're going to go through all of that looking at these games. Um, let's start with the James Ward Proud question. This, of course, uh, was his 17th direct free kick in the Premier League. Only David Beckham has scored more direct free kick goals in the Premier League than him. Um, and James Ward-Prowse is still knocking about. He's still scoring at a rate of knots. He might break that record this season. In fact, in fact, I think he probably will. Um, a great, great, great um, you know record to have. And I always love when these records are held by players who don't necessarily play for the the quote unquote top teams. Like I, I find it really enjoyable when you see like yeah. You know, are the person who has the most, and it's like a good stack. Because obviously, you've got sort of like people like Richard Dunn, I think, getting the most red cards or the most own goals or something. Um, but like, I like when it's like, oh, like, did you know the most like headed goals is Peter Crouch? And I'm like, that's just a good stat. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was sure if you were gonna um, carry on there. It, it's always fun to have, like, I guess you know, yeah, as you say, specific players um, with their specific skill sets for. Um, you know, each individual stat. Um, I agree with you. Listen, I think I think the world of James Ward-Prowse, we've talked about this before. Um, he's got six goals this season for a really ailing Southampton. He's dragged them through games. I think his goals have have won at least, I want to say, like about 10 points. Um, I can think of two, two wins off the top of my head, this one and um, the one earlier this month where he scored a brace to win 2-1, I think. Um, so, you know, I, I think he's fantastic. And I was talking to a friend about this, um, either yesterday or the day before, I think, for example, that he could very easily walk into Manchester United's midfield and do the job that, uh, Christian Eriksen is doing. I think he's a really good progressive midfielder. I think he pops up in the, in the final third more than you would think. I think his, his creativity is there as well. Um, he's still young. I think he's only like 27. Um, uh, 28. 28. But still, he's 28 yeah. now. Um, but yeah, I, I I think he would also walk into obviously Chelsea's midfield because they are just floundering. I think he gets games at City, but doesn't start every game. Um, I think that he'd be a great signing by Newcastle United and I would like to see that happen. Um, I think he plays for Spurs. I think I think he could probably do Jorginho's job and maybe slightly better than his um, at Arsenal. Uh, I think he walks into almost any side in the Prem, personally. I, I mean, in, in terms of the squad, yeah, definitely. There's no one squad he wouldn't walk into. The first 11, I think it's maybe like City and a full, full, full strength Arsenal that he wouldn't walk into right now. Because I don't know if he unseats Thomas Partey. But yes, it's not. It's, it's most of the teams he does walk into, and yeah, I mean, it, it's always so. I mean, look at someone like Kieran Trippier at Newcastle, for example. You cannot understate 
the importance of just a specialist, just someone who can whip in a good free kick or any sort of dead ball situation incredibly well. Um, Kieran Trippier has been, you know, obviously a solid right back for them, but his value has been so much more than that for Newcastle. And and I think James Will Prowse at a club that was sort of a little bit stronger than this current Southampton side would, would see that side of him as well. He'd be a real clutch player. Yeah, and I, th- I think he's been, personally, I do think he's been improving his overall game. Um, obviously, his free kicks have been outstanding for a while. But, um, you know, he got eight goals in the 2020-21 season, 10 goals last season. He's on six now, on course for around nine or 10 again, in a season where, you know, they're all over the place. Um, I mean, he might even be, see their top goal scorer? Uh, I believe he is. can't think who else it would be. <laughs> Yeah, who's, and, who's and, going to score like, more than six goals for Southampton this season? Exactly, and and you know while he is a a forwards-minded midfielder, he's by no means like an out-and-out attacking midfielder. He's got a very well-rounded game. So yeah, I, I'm just um very impressed with him um and his his work ethic, his technique, etc. Um and mm. yeah, there you go. I think he is good enough. Very impressive indeed. Well, let's talk about the next question. Uh, if you sacked your manager after every single game, this is uh, you know, giving Todd Bowley ideas, would the new manager, or the no manager <laughs> bounce, see you win the league unbeaten? We've seen who, it a number no of times um, across across football, uh, but we've seen, uh, you know, we've definitely seen it uh, a few times this season. Very recently, um, you had Everton uh, following Frank Lampard beating top of the league Arsenal. You had Leeds after losing Jesse Marsh, um, you know, smashing over to a, you know, an eventual draw, which is still a great result, but, you know, a 2-0 start against Manchester United. Uh, and now here you've seen Southampton who, who couldn't buy a result and were losing sort of games when they were 1-0 up against 10 men just last week, um, beating Chelsea and, and keeping them out. Is this is this the strat? Do you just sat someone every every week, regardless of result? I mean, I I think it's a flawless plan. I see no bad things coming from that idea. Um, I think the constant confusion would be fun. I think that it would add a little bit of spice, a little bit of flavour to to the season to have thirty plus managers. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm in. Um, I think it's always really interesting as well when you see this happen because there's it's one thing when you sort of watch a manager doing a really good job and you sort of go like um, you know whether it's Jurgen Klopp or you know Carlo Ancelotti and you go wow this manager's really raised the level of everyone like you know these players are you know performing so much better than they did in recent years like the reverse of it when it happens this season and you're like what was Nathan Jones doing he must have been because like, because <laughs> like, at a certain point it, it's you would think it's like quite difficult to make a player play better than they already are because you have to either sort of like figure out the areas they need to develop or you need to sort of you know build into their psyche to like make players actively worse <laughs> like not just be picking them but like the same teams doing much better under new managers is like wow these players just did not want to play for you or they did not like what you were you know what you were putting out there um <laughs> and so for them to immediately win like uh, like the fact that they one is one thing. The fact that they want to nil is like the big thing for me because they've been so leaky recently. Um, so yeah, I think Nathan Jones must have just been like torturing them, putting one of them on the rack every now and again <laughs> to to sort of get the results he was getting out of them. I think uh, I think you might be right. I think you might well be right. Um, also, quite funny, um, Luton are now doing better with him gone. They're fourth. Um, yeah, well, so, uh, it's, it's the the championships in quite an exciting place at the moment. Um, 
I don't want to go into it sure. too much, but yeah, there's there's very 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 um, I think between like the sixth place playoff spot and like fourteenth or fifteenth or something, it's about five points. Um, there are all sorts of teams that aren't normally sort of in the near the playoff spots that are in the playoff spots. Luton being one of them, Millwall were and talked about recently. Obviously, Burnley are absolutely storming up at the top of the the league, so it's quite an interesting season for the championship. Um, if there are any listeners who don't ever check in, I would encourage you to at least uh, you know look at the table to have a little bit of a thought on who our new transfer students might be for next season of school. Um, but <laughs> as you say there, Luton could be coming up. Nathan Jones could be going elsewhere. Um, other manager who is in uh, perhaps a little bit of a managerial fiasco uh, is the other man in the dugout, or the only man uh, in the dugout permanently <laughs> uh, in this game, uh, which is of course Graham Potter. Um, keen to hear your thoughts here. What has gone wrong here? Because. I was of the mind that Graham Potter was a quite a good manager and a really good pickup for Chelsea. I thought that this was sort of antithetical of the kind of stuff I was expecting from Todd Bowley, whereas where like the Mudricks and the Enzo Fernandez is a much more the sort of like unbelievable sort of blockbuster signings that haven't really been well considered. Whereas Graham Potter was like a little bit more of a low key. We're bringing in a manager who he maybe doesn't have the best reputation in the world in terms of like you know winning anything or managing top clubs, but he's one of the sort of most promising young coaches in the country and it it's not going well at all no it's really not um and i think that there are a couple of really concerning things um i think the first is that you know for 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 like for neutrals and you know you know you often get um when you open the newspapers you get like predicted lineups right um for every game it'll say like you know here's what we reckon um, they uh, here's how we reckon they'll line up. At the moment, newspapers to put down Chelsea's lineup, they must just be like looking at the stars or like checking horoscopes. It, it's so random, week in week out, as to who's actually going to get the nod. Um, you know, this week it was Fafana leading the line. Um, uh, behind him, a three of Mason Mount, um, Sequeira and Maduki. Um, you know. Fernandes and Kovacic behind him. It's just a really new look Chelsea literally every game. Is it called Joao Felix Sequeira there? Is that like his maternal surname? Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's not a normal thing to do without context. Um, yeah. Although, just to jump in, not to break your side, isn't it funny how Joao Felix is a great addition to this? There are some footballers who you only ever, like, you would never call him Felix. It's always Joao Felix. Anyway, just something to you to think about. Back to back to where you were. Yeah, right, sorry. Um, yeah, I forget. I should probably, should probably say uh, Sokoro with a bit of context. Um, Joao Felix. Um, but, you know, I just think it's it's so disjointed and... There's there's no sense of unity. There's no there's no understanding of the pitch of like clear roles. Um, the only I think a couple of one of a couple of things is happening. Right, either Graham Potter is not the manager we thought he was. He he's good for a team that has less pressure involved, um, and you know he just has found his ceiling and should go back down to another side where I'm sure he'll be very good. I'm I think. I think option A is unlikely. Option two is that I think Todd Bowley is doing something behind the scenes. He's trying to be more involved with picking teams. 
He is putting pressure on him at weird points. I don't know, but but something in the back room is happening that is like stopping Graham Potter being able to do the job that he wants to do, which maybe could be. Um, and then the third one, which I think is probably the most likely, is that I just think that he's come in at a season in which Chelsea are chaos from top to bottom because of because of Todd Bowley and because of all of the changes um, to the hierarchy up and down. Um, and because he starts in the middle of the season, he's never had enough time and the World Cup didn't do it to just stop and take stock and go, right, can we all just like sit down and, and manage and like find plans, build strategies? I want to test different systems in training without having to prepare for the game on the weekend. And I wonder if he's just really, really struggling, probably more, more than anyone I've seen, for a lack of um, uh, what's it called pre-season um, because, because of the, the turmoil that Chelsea are in as a club. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. And I, I want to sort of, well, your take and the listener's take on this, either augment or do absolutely nothing to help um, your sort of insightful analysis there, just by talking about a rumour I'd, I'd heard this week, um, uh, you know, on the grapevine, um, which was that um, <laughs> Todd Bowley, uh, earlier when he sort of took over Chelsea, um, before Graham Potter had come in, he sort of uh, took Thomas Tuchel to one side and had a conversation with him about what he thought his preferred lineup for Chelsea should be, which firstly is like, outside of the purview of what an owner should be doing, uh, I think in most people's opinion, the owner doesn't really, like, the owner's not the manager, the, that's the manager's area, he, he knows best, etc, etc. Um, but to hear the rumour go, apparently um, there were a few things that sort of put out Thomas Tuchel by this sort of suggestion. One of them was like Edouard Mondi wasn't wasn't in the eleven. A couple of the key players that he'd sort of grown used to weren't in the eleven. Um, but the thing that put him out the most was that Todd Bowley had uh, put together this chart and he'd fielded the players in a four four three formation, uh, which is of course one more player than you're allowed to field in a game of football <laughs> in any of the professional leagues. Um, now, who knows how true this is? Um, <laughs> it's too believable to be that, but true. But the fact that it's credible it's, <laughs> says it all, really. It's too it's too hilariously on the nose to be true. Like I, <laughs> um, but look, I, I mean, I think that there is a good chance. I, I mean, there were rumors swirling around Chelsea for a long time that you know, and this is this is much more um, soft, but also surely happens at the top clubs that you know you bring in a new franchise player and and you you lean on the manager to start them someone like Christian Pulisic I think is a great example right you're like okay Mm. got this player in he's young he's exciting the fact that he's American will help our audiences I'm not suggesting that's the only reason they bought him um but you go look um ex-manager I would really like you to integrate this person and make sure that that they are performing well, that they feel welcome, that they're starting games because the upside is great. The the scouts have said that he's got a great amount of potential and we've invested a lot of money in him and I want you Mm. to make sure that he's going to do well. So money, money doesn't just put pressure on, on players heads, but it puts pressure on managers heads because they go, look, you've, (laughs) we've bought you this player make sure that he's a good asset. Make sure that our money is not um, wasted because at the same time, 
you know, if you're the technical director and you've just financed a move um, or you're the head scout and you've just recommended a move or you're the chief negotiator and you just feel like you, you've you managed to get what is a good deal, all of these people are going to be looking to the manager to to ultimately deliver on, on what they have set up. Um, and so the pressure doesn't just come from, from the owner who's, who's actually like green lit the deal, but it comes from all the players, all, all, all the people, sorry, in the, in the setup, all of them want these top players to play games and do well. And I, I think that that used to happen a lot at Chelsea, uh, if you're going to listen to the rumors. Um, but it does feel like there's a strong chance that that needle has shifted now. And Todd Bowley is having more of an influence. Um, and I mean, the players don't particularly happy. I wouldn't say Graham Potter looks particularly happy. And it could well just be because they're losing all the damn time. But I think it also could be because they're being they're being put upon more than they would like to by the manager. Like I could imagine, for example, Todd Bowley going into the dressing room after the game to talk to the players, tell them what he thought of them, all of this stuff. And, and none of it will be positive. Yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely true, and I think yeah, there's there's something there. Maybe it's it's always a difficult situation because like, how do you? He's essentially everyone's boss at the club. So it's what someone needs to do is basically go like, look, mate, love all the stuff you're doing. Thanks for all the financing, but like, stay in your zone. But you can't really do that to the to everyone's boss. So so we'll see how that goes. I I, I want to move on um just just to one of our next topics quickly but before we do everything we've discussed there you know why things aren't working out for Potter the areas that are his fault the areas aren't his fault um you're you know snap my fingers you're Todd Bowley tomorrow are you sticking with Potter or are you letting him go I think that I would stick with Potter um the reason being I think for any of those those reasons that I've that I've given at the start for what might be happening, I think that if if it is Todd Bowley being really weird, I think that Graham Potter is probably the manager that will, you know, not not quit the earliest um, for that, um, and and maybe they can work out some sort of semblance of a of a good business relationship between them. I think that. He is a good manager and he's shown that and to give him time would be the right move. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, personally, though, I would, I'm always, to be honest with you, unless it really is like Nathan Jones or Samson, I, I always kind of broadly want to stick with the manager and give them time. Um, I always lean towards that because I do think that they're clever people that have gotten to the position that they have for, for good reasons um and i often feel like managers get fired too soon mm. i certainly think that 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 last bit's true um well moving swiftly on what do you, what do you trivia think? i i i do i think someone could do better better job than him probably but at the same time I, yeah i just think and it's all sort of conjecture, but I think if we're right about sort of Todd Bowley whispering in your ear that you've got to do this and that, it's a difficult job for anyone. Um, and, and maybe with time, as we saw at Brighton, you know, Graham Potter can put enough of his stuff in before Todd Bowley gets to him that they'll end up sort of doing quite well. Um, I mean, I, I, th- but, I think... But at the same time, yeah. the other consideration is, with all this outlay for Chelsea, they do need 
a lot of their life. They don't qualify for the Champions League, they're in a little bit of trouble. It's true. I'm just kind of wondering, like, is there anyone really that stands out as, like, someone that Todd Bowley would be awed enough by that he wouldn't try and push around as a manager? Like, for example, if, like, Zidane came in to manage Chelsea instead of Graham Potter, would Todd Bowley be, like, impressed by him enough to to sit quietly and let him do his work? I think personally, no. With someone like Jurgen Klinsmann coming in, um, you know, old um, USA manager. Is he still USA manager? (laughs) I think that's a a hilarious shout. (laughs) You like Zidane. You're like, you know, Zinedine Zidane, greats of the game, Jurgen Klinsmann. (laughs) No, but um, as a different example, Jurgen Klinsmann came in, because he has that profile in America, is he more likely to be able to tell Todd Bowley to shut up? I don't know. Hmm. It's, it's a good question. Well, uh, I, I think I'd probably lose him and look elsewhere due to the sort of time pressure. Um, but let's move into a bit of useless trivia. Mm. I've got a funny sort of little um, vignette for you about Garincha. Uh, Garincha, who, of course, uh, you know, two-time World Cup winner, uh, Brazilian striker, known for his antics off the field, one of the original yeah. sort of footballing rock stars. Uh, I've got, got a story like the about... The Was that his nickname? Was that Jezinho? So, yeah. Anyway, go on. Uh, Anyway, I've read quite this amusing story about when he was uh, on tour with Botafogo in Sweden um, and his wife was back home in Brazil, sort of heavily pregnant, um, not to be deterred uh, from having a good time on his, not holiday, but essentially work trip. Um, Garincha found a a local Swedish woman and fathered a child with her, uh, returning child uh, with his additional child. He also found out that his mistress in Rio had also announced her pregnancy. With three kids on the way by three different women, you'd have thought that he would have been planning for the future and would have been sort of saving up cash. Um, but he didn't really sort of have a good system for saving his cash. Uh, he'd hidden his World Cup bonus cash under his children's mattress. He did have 14 children after all. Uh, and all the money was destroyed when his son wet the bed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what? Just, just, a, just a pure chaos human, that. Richard, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh uh, good footballer on the pitch bad human off the pitch by the sounds of it <laughs> very, uh, very questionable behaviour that's so funny I love that he also during the same period uh, in the same story he was sort of like focused on other stuff so he kept missing out on training for Botafogo and the players would sort of take bets on what his next excuse would be for missing a session um, and apparently he used to just repeatedly come in and be like my father fell off a horse and they were like "How? M- stop riding horses Mr. Garincha <laughs> <laughs> my father fell off a horse. <laughs> oh, wow. That is fantastic. Um, well, uh, fresh from the, the chaos of um, a, uh, a Brazilian winger, um, I have some chaotic appointments from the Premier League. Um, we talked last week about Nathan Jones and whether or not he was, in fact, one of the worst managers ever in the Premier League. Um, so I thought I would actually go away and take a quick look at it. Um, and what I fa- yeah. in fact found was that there are three managers um, in the Premier League era who have never won a game, have a win percentage of zero. One of which you mentioned. Boer. One of which you mentioned last week, which is Frank de Boer, who um, had four games in charge of Crystal Palace in the 2017-18 season and lost all of them, um, which is, I still think, incredibly impressive um, to not even manage to draw one. 
the the second one is a man by the name of Terry Connor, who you might remember from Wolves' 2011-2012 season, uh, who managed a, again, zero win percentage. Um, and he uh, was 13 games in charge and managed to draw four of them. Um, so not particularly impressive in that regard. And then the final one, who I think we can, clearly should have been fired long before he was, a man by the name of Paul Jewell, who you might remember from Derby's 2007-2008 season, who was left in charge for 24 games as boss, not managing to win a single one and drawing just five of them, um, and eventually getting them relegated with a final tally of just 11 points that season. Good. Good lord, <laughs> there are certainly all three keep three awful managers there. I, I was sort of expect. I was waiting for you to talk about. Um, do you remember John Carver? I, I, I was wondering if he was going to be in there somewhere. I remember he he was very Nathan Jones esque. He had that horrible period as Newcastle's yeah. interim manager, and he was like, and he came out with like a, a weird quote. He was like, "I'm the best coach in the Premier League." <laughs> and I was like, results don't seem like it, mate. <laughs> uh, so I was wondering if he was going to be in there. Sadly, not. I would. I would like. I would have liked him to be. Um, cause yeah, he was, what was it? The 14, 15 season that he, it was the 14, 15 season. He oversaw a run of eight successive league defeats between 4th of March and 2nd of May. <laughs> and it was, it was at the result of those eight league defeats. He was like, I'm the best coach in the Premier League, which to be honest, uh, that's, that's a confidence you can aspire to. You've got to rate it. Um, you've really got to admire it. Um, but no, he in fact is not even in the top 10 of worst win percentages, which are all 10% or lower. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't even come close, Cam. He was too good. Wow, well, He was too good. Too, you heard it here first. <laughs> too good to make the list. Uh, let's talk next about um, Newcastle nil, Liverpool 2. Uh, a couple of interesting sub-stories coming from this um, this match. Um, firstly, you say sub-stories? Pope, sub-stories. Like not, not main stories, but but oh, stories right, that right, offshoot right. Like, from the main story, which was the game itself. Um, think, one of which was sob, sad. Go on, Sorry. Nick Pope. Well, this is a, a bit of a sob story in, in a sense because Nick Pope uh, picked up a red card, and as a result, he will miss the Carabao Cup final that Newcastle are playing uh, on Sunday. A um, couple of interesting things there. Firstly. Very sad for Nick Pope, who's been a cornerstone of this team. Um, very sad for Newcastle United fans, who are going to be missing one of their talismanic players. Um, but there is someone who is maybe benefiting from this. Um, it's not Newcastle United's second-choice goalkeeper, which you may think is strange, um, because Martin Dubravka uh, has already played for another team in the Carabao Cup uh, this, yeah, yeah. This, this season, not least Manchester United. Uh, it's their third-choice goalkeeper, none other than Loris Carriers. <laughs> he has a chance to redeem himself at last. Honestly, it's it's there are there are fairy tale moments in football, and you can never tell me otherwise. Um, because I actually would just love to uh, to have him um, turn up on the big stage. I always felt bad for him, um, a, a man who was quite clearly concussed during the um, the Champions League final and never got properly seen to, never got taken off when he should have been. Um, spent the game wandering around like a headless chicken, conceded a couple of woeful goals, and then had his career kind of ruined as a result. Um, so yeah, good good luck to you. Uh, Laureus, um, in in your next endeavours, um, it's a shame for Nick Pope. Um, obviously, 
you know, he um, he will be lost um, in that Newcastle defence. And, and any any change of defence can be quite disruptive. Um, it's funny to see Eddie House quotes. I don't know if you saw, um, there were, there were rumours that Newcastle were going to try and repeal his red card. Um, and Eddie, Eddie Howe, sorry, I said Eddie Jones, didn't I? Eddie Howe came out and said, uh, yeah, we're not going to do that. As much as as much as we think it was slightly unfair, we just thought there was no point, um, which I found. I, quite I don't really understand how it was unfair. It was one of the clearest red cards. Like you're not you're not going to get a much more obvious red card. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I don't really know where the rumor came from either, because it seems like you know that it was just a red card. But um, there were a lot of things about how it was harsh, about how you know it technically it, it maybe shouldn't have been a red card. And I personally am not not too sure where they were going with it. Yeah, I didn't really think so either. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, I would urge to to watch it. But Nick Pope essentially is, you know, way outside of his box and seemingly forgets that he is and sort of like dives to save it. <laughs> and the referee's almost like immediately like, well, you're off. Um, but the other thing about this game, I mean, obviously playing against 10 men uh, was one thing, although I think for what it's worth, Newcastle actually played better when they had 10 men. Um Another loss for Newcastle, or I should say another non-win for Newcastle, um, and a rare win for Liverpool, who are actually also the, I think, the first team to put two goals past Newcastle at St. James's Park since themselves back in August. Um, so a little, little <laughs> bonus for you there. Um, extra uses uh, trivia. A little bit of extra uses trivia for you there. In case the uh, Garage one was a little bit too wordy for you down at the pub, uh, you don't normally get that much talking time. Uh, just a little, little neat, sweet one there for you. Um, but yeah, Liverpool finding their feet, maybe. Um, certainly the two goal scorers, uh, Cody Gakpo and Darwin Nunez, are players that have suffered, um, you know, not the most exciting starts to their time uh, at the club. Obviously, Gakpo only arrived in, in January, um, but Nunez all season has been a little bit off the money. Um, but yeah, they both were sort of firing in this one. Trent Alexander-Arnold looks like he's getting back into form a little bit. Mohamed Salah looks a little bit hungrier. Um, is Liverpool are Liverpool going to maybe start coming back into this at the end of the season? Is you know top four a massive pipe dream? Could they potentially revive things? Or is this just a flash in the pan? Uh, they had a great sort of go um, against a Newcastle that's waning a little bit, and I'm overrating them. No, I, look, I don't think it's a it's a flash in the pan at all. I mean, when you look at the well, yeah. Firstly, I think that I mean we I think we said it as soon as. Um, Gakpo was signed and was not looking great. He's obviously got a goal here. Um, don't underestimate Klopp's ability to um, to embed wingers. It might take a little while, but he's got a great track record of just um, getting rid of and then being able to replace. Um, not necessarily like for like in terms of influence. I do think they still really miss Sadio Mane, um, but you know, Gakpo is a very good player and should turn out good. And if you look at Nunez, um, I think the first season that he had for, um, oh God, was was it Benfica? Yeah, the first season he had for Benfica, he was absolutely atrocious. I was watching something by a, um, a Benfica fan just saying like, I literally could not believe my eyes at the chances that he was missing every single game. Uh, I think he only managed like five goals that whole season from leading the line. And then the next season, he just comes out and absolutely explodes. So he will need a little bit of time by the looks of it. I think he's come out and said that as well. It will take time. Um, but I think that these are two good players. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see them with a lot more good performances by the end of the year. 
And then in terms of whether or not they can move up the table, I mean, I think if you look at the, the teams above them, yes, you know, in, in the last six games, Brighton have drawn two and lost one. Fulham have lost two and drawn one. Newcastle have drawn four um, and lost one of their last six games. Yeah, even Spurs have lost three. So all of these sides are are very uh, susceptible to dropping points. And we know that Liverpool can be absolutely dominant at times and they have really good momentum behind them when they, they um, pick up steam. So I think that and the fact that they've got a game in hand on like Newcastle and fifth, which if they win, they're only three points behind. I think they could absolutely move into European spots, maybe even, um, you know, the top four. Um, New, um, Spurs, they've got two games in hand on Spurs, um, I believe, and they're only seven points behind. So, yeah, 100%. Mm, well, clop in then. Um, final word on the podcast, just a little sort of comment that I saw yesterday that I wanted to get your opinion on. Uh, one that I'm sure we'll be able to deliberate over in much detail uh, the next time we roll around uh, to an international tournament and one that will have a lot more information to work off. Uh, but Graham Soonis said that Harry Kane was England's only world-class player. Uh, and I just wanted to put that to you uh, and whether, see whether you think that's true. If Harry Kane is, and, and you know, I don't think it's necessarily something that has a definitively correct answer because one man's world class is, you know, some people think there's 50 world class players in the world. Some people think there's only, you know, 10 or 11. Um, some people think it is literally who would make up a world 11, for example. Some people think it's a squad. Um, what is your take on that comment? Um, is Harry Kane... England's only world-class player and isn't it strange to say that certainly at a time when you've got someone like Rashford in such good form and Saka in such good form and we've just spent the World Cup all just absolutely creaming our pants over Jude Bellingham um <laughs> strange take from Graham Sooners or is he bang on I think the strangest part about it is that Harry Kane was the reason probably the reason part of the reason why we got as far as we did but also the reason why, quite ostensibly, we we crashed out. So, you know, I think personally, my definition of world class is someone that I think can can carry a side to international success. Um, you know, I'm well, thinking I think of someone like international success in many. I don't think that because then by that um, qualifier, Wayne Rooney wouldn't have been world class, and he obviously was. It's it's tricky. I think maybe I, I think of that more um, outside of of like the major teams. I'm thinking of someone like yeah, it's a fair point. It's I, I would say my definition of world class almost changes based on the conversation. I think <laughs> I think that's true for most people. To be fair, yeah, fair enough. Um, I I think Jude Bellingham is world class. I I I think that Bakayo Saka is fast on his way to. I think that Marcus Rashford is great, but I want to see him do it for a whole season. Um, and I want to see him do it consistently in an England shirt. Um, but beyond that, I don't think I don't think Sterling is world class. I don't think um I think Carl Walker is world class actually. I would I would put him in that category. Um, really? 
Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strange one you've gone for that because I was going to say that my, my favorite part of this conversation is firstly it's just always interesting to sort of kick around with your mates and you know see who they rate and see who they don't rate but equally funny was sort of watching people like under the various tweets I saw just throwing some of the most ridiculous names just being like <laughs> oh this but I'm just like that guy's not even close to what <laughs> what are you talking about no I think Carl Walker's really good or at least or at least he has been for a long part of his career he might well be getting too old to be considered world-class now but I think that two years ago world-class five years ago world-class interesting I wouldn't have tended to agree with that um but I think why not of interest uh, uh when I think of like world-class like I, I don't think that Carl Walker is the I think he's not as good as a fully fit Reese James. I think he's not as good, although he's different. I think he's not as good as a fully fit Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, so when he's, I mean, I know he plays ahead of them because he can play that centre-back role as well, but I'd, if I was picking the team, I wouldn't pick him ahead of either of those players. And so I think someone who, and maybe this is just me not being a football manager, but in my head, I, I can't see someone like that as world-class who wouldn't necessarily get in ahead of not one, but two other players. I think, so, I mean... Reese James is still very, very new, and I think too it's too soon to call him world class. Um, and well, I think Reece, Trent, Reece James, I think won't, won't unfortunately at his peak, he's a top, top, top player, but he just plays about ten games a season. So, well, exactly. Um, and I think I think you would pick Trent if he was in form, and you wouldn't if he wasn't. Um, but I hear you. I hear you. I just think he Carl Walker consistently puts in eight out of ten performances. I think he can play anywhere across a back line. He can play at centre-back, he can play at uh, right-back, he can play at right-wing-back. Um, and I think he just is really good at performing a role for a team. Um, he's been one of the most consistent players of Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. He started, surely, um, you know, close to the most amount of games for an outfield player. Um, and this mm. has been a really, really dominant Man City over the last five, six years. But I I take your point. This is why it's so interesting because you take it from one angle and you're like, oh, okay. You take it from another and you're like, well, Reese James and Trent are both above him, so no. And and you can kind of make the case for either. Mm. No, it's it. Both both good points. Uh, and therein is the is the interesting debate. Um, who's I've your, who's your uh, world-class England players, if any? James or Prowse, mate. <laughs> we just nice. talked about this <laughs> nice and dodged well done uh that is probably a great place to end it for this week rupert great to talk to you as always cam thank you very much and thank you to everyone home for listening we will catch you next time cheers guys bye Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.